Welcome to Shovel Talk, a podcast for economic developers. From your friends at the Golden Shovel Agency. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Shovel Talk. I am producer Darren here kicking things off. We have a wonderful guest for you today, very interesting guest, Commissioner Steve Grove from the state of Minnesota is going to be joining us here in a few moments. But first, we need to know where in the world is Amanda? Yes, so I left... Cancun just a little over a week ago and landed in Belize last week. So I am loving Caribbean life over here in Belize. It's been a little stormy because we are in hurricane season, but still beautiful, definitely hot and humid, but it's a good time over here. So definitely enjoying myself. (laughs) Well, I've heard you ran into a little trouble though. I mean, I feel really bad for you. Can you tell us, you know, your bad experience as far as doing some deep sea diving? I know that was a little (laughs) traumatic for you. Why don't you say what's going on there as far as um, um, the issues with the cloudy water? Well, see, in Cancun, I went scuba diving off Isla Mujeres, and it was such an amazing experience. It was absolutely beautiful water, um, super colorful fish, super colorful reefs. And when I got here, a storm had just come through, and the water, I, I went diving. I was so excited. My expectations were way up here, you know, after after my last dive. And it was really low visibility, couldn't really see much of anything, So yeah, but as you always tell people, Darren, you can't feel too bad for me since I'm in Belize, right? (laughs) I was was just going to say that I go as everyone in podcast land feels really bad for you, Amanda, right now. um, Why don't you introduce our special guest, Commissioner Steve Grove? So I'm so excited to tell you about our guest that we have on today, Commissioner Steve Grove. He is a Commissioner of Employment and Economic Development for Minnesota. He's also worked as an executive for Google. He's worked for YouTube. Very, very interesting and unique background. Let's dive into the conversation with Commissioner Steve Grove. We wanted to ask your perspective, obviously, as someone who is leading statewide economic development initiatives on what the main role of the state should be in economic development overall. Great question. Well, the mission of our agency is to empower the growth of the Minnesota economy for everyone. And, you know, we chose those words very carefully because we don't think government is the thing that's going to grow economies. We're there to partner with business and workers to empower that growth. And I think that when we talk about empowering the growth of our economy, we're very deliberate about saying for everyone, because this economy works for some people and it doesn't for others. And where I think government can play a role is looking for where the gaps are in our market, whether that's for a job seeker who can't find a role because of a barrier to employment, whether that's for a company that can't quite get off the ground because there's a missing piece as it comes to to training or or incentives or or talent. We're trying to look for areas where the market isn't incentivized to move things forward, but maybe government actually is for our larger collective good. So, you know, at our agency, that means we spend a pretty broad cross-section of things. We do everything from uh, training those with disabilities or or the blind to helping startups grow through incentive dollars to getting talent to want to move to the state and build a life here. And, you know, we're trying to cover every aspect of a worker or every aspect of a business's, you know, experience in our market and to to look for areas where government can accelerate growth and and really lean forward because, you know, especially in moments like the last 18 months that we've all had, there's going to be states that come out of this pandemic on top and those that come out of it struggling. And none of that's inevitable. I think government has to play, you know, a collaborative role in that journey as, as our economy reinvents itself coming out of COVID-19. 
I think it's interesting that you mention for everyone, because that does, as you said, really hit on every sector from the individual to startups to your major employers. Knowing how broad your mission is, how do you balance that? Yeah, well, we certainly look where the most need is. Uh, and in Minnesota, we know there are a couple of categories where we really have to focus. I think for one, we want to focus on people that have disabilities or barrier to work physically. And one of the largest divisions of our agency is focused on vocational rehabilitation, looking at workers that are often overlooked because of a particular physical disability, but in fact can provide a lot of value in our labor force and sometimes bring unique skills that are differentiating based on that disability. If you have a disability your whole life, you're a heck of a problem solver. You find ways to get around things and navigate experiences. And I think a lot of employers, especially in the tight labor market, need to look at these sort of unseen pools of talent in our state. And it's our job, I think, to make that seem uh, more accessible. And then I think you can't talk about the Minnesota economy without talking about the gaps that we have between whites and people of color. The last uh, year and a half has shown a spotlight on that for, I think, the whole country um, in ways that are, I think, helpful, if not challenging. But in Minnesota, we have some of the worst gaps between whites and people of color when it comes to incomes and educational achievement and what have you. And I think we're at a moment as a state that I would call a time of reckoning and a time to really examine why that is and look not just at sort of the surface level statistics, but the deeper systematic reasons why we see gaps and opportunity for whites and people of color in Minnesota. And you can just feel that in the culture here, especially in the wake of the murder of George Floyd and all of the civil unrest and the the powerful movements that came out of that conversation. This has been a longstanding challenge, but it's one that I think Minnesota feels poised to tackle with new energy, given all that's taken place. So yeah, it is for everyone. And that does mean we're accessible to everybody, but we've got to focus on those that need the most help as we think about growing our economy, especially after a year in which the pandemic uh, was uneven in its, in its challenges uh, for those who, uh, who either had COVID or, or had work challenges due to COVID. So how are you supporting economic development at the local level and also at the rural level, including um, areas with broadband efficiencies? Yeah, well, this last year certainly taught us of the importance of broadband internet for the future of our economy. And in Minnesota, that's as true as anywhere else. We happen to have a really uh, nationally recognized program focused on broadband development across Minnesota. Uh, many states have modeled their program off of ours. We're, uh, we feel very fortunate for that fact that we have a, a good program moving. And we put records amounts of money into that program just in this last legislative session, another $70 million into that program. And of course, you have federal dollars coming in too. Look, I mean, broadband is the plumbing of the future, just to state the obvious. Every house has to have it to be connected to the global economy. And if you're going to create vitality in rural Minnesota, you've got to have the ability to start a business from anywhere or not only start a business, but to join a business or engage in global commerce. So it's important on so many facets of our life from, from our economy to education and beyond. Broadband is definitely a place you need to start when you think about uh, rural vitality. But I think it's also a time when you know everyone is taking this giant collective pause and asking themselves, what, what is my future in this economy? Where where do I fit in? What's my role? What are my opportunities? And where do I want to live? And some of those barriers about um, where you live and what you do have kind of melted away as the whole world has in one fell swoop proven that telework is possible for a lot of jobs. Minnesota is a state that boasts an extraordinary opportunity to live outdoors, to enjoy our, our lakes, uh, our, our rivers, uh, our, our coasts with, uh, with Lake Superior. We have a phenomenal state for the outdoors. 
there are people who want to live outside of the Twin Cities or a big city and still have a job that connects them to the world. Um, we want to make that really possible, you know, in, in our state. And so it means investing in the kind of companies that can go and build and, and grow great jobs here and that are going to define the next chapter of our economy. We think we have a shot at that here, unique to other states that we're really going to lean in on. Great. And definitely that is very important. We see that a lot with the work we do in rural communities, how just getting good broadband access can be the spark that they need to grow their economies. Now, you mentioned, obviously, the pandemic. It's impossible to talk about statewide economic development without doing that. What do you feel is the biggest challenge for your department in helping businesses to recover from the pandemic? Well, I think that in the near term, we have the very practical challenge of just having received $2.8 billion at a state government level, let alone the $8 billion total that our state got from the American Rescue Plan to distribute uh, in a fair and thoughtful manner to really accelerate our growth. And how exactly you do that and the ways in which you invest those really precious federal dollars that every state gets is going to be a big differentiator in terms of how our state grows. And the decisions that different states make on how to use these really valuable levers is are really important. So I think we want to get that right. And to get that right, it's not just going to be a bunch of bureaucrats in our state capital on whiteboards figuring it out. we got to be engaging with business and with workers to make the right decisions there. And, and there are good incentive dollars and there's incentive dollars that are kind of a wash. So we have to spend them and spend that money in the right way. You know, I think getting back to the challenge of, of equity in our state, I do think that we have to take a look at the systems that are in place in our programs and make sure that they're accessible to everyone. And You've got a state where you're seeing a lot of new business starts kick up over 30% increase in the new business starts over the last year. And we want to make sure that as many of those businesses are successful as possible. And Minnesota happens to have the best business survivability rate of any state in the country. So if you start a business here, it's more likely to be around in five years than in any other state in America. So we're very proud of that fact. We just need more, more swings at the pitch. And so we want to make sure our services are accessible to anybody in any language who can start a business. Those who don't usually have access to capital, we want to find ways to get capital to them through maybe non-traditional sources. Again, we want to grow this economy for everyone. And to do that, you got to examine panels that you're using to, to fund businesses and, and to encourage that business start. So it's not always the usual suspects that are showing up for your programs and you're, you're diversified in your portfolio. So as a leader, what are your insights for how at the local level, economic developers can address some of those access issues? Because that's something the state faces, but something everyone faces, whether you're a rural or a big city. Yeah, it is. And I think you need help. I mean, I think there are issues around access and access to information that you're never going to solve on your own unless you find partnerships. So you know, there are organizations that are working in community that are, are ready and willing to try to connect um, economic developers to new audiences if you only reach out. I think it seems like a daunting task if you're like, well, how, how can I possibly reach everyone with my program or make sure it has access to everyone? And, you know, it's not just a classified ad in the paper anymore. It's, we have a more complex world and more sets of opportunities to do stuff. You got to partner with organizations that have that kind of competency. One of the things we've done here is we've created a, a, a small business partnership grant program that funds organizations to do just that, to do that kind of technical assistance. We in state government are never going to be the best at outreach because we're a giant big bureaucracy and we're located at, you know, we are the state government. So we've got to have local partners too. So we think about this in the same way. We have lending partners all across the state that we're 
working with who know their communities better, know their audiences better, know the languages, the cultures, the customs. That's the kind of ecosystem you want and need if you're going to grow a really inclusive economy. So distribution, really. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. And and then capacity building, too. I mean, not everybody's ready to ready for that next project, ready to develop. You need uh, folks to, to build the capacity to, to have access to capital and opportunity. And, and that's a, a big component, too. There's different stages of readiness, obviously, in that pipeline. So as a former uh, technology executive, you bring a very unique perspective to economic development. Uh, how is technology changing economic development? And what do communities need to do to prepare for that? Yeah, well, what is technology not changing in some ways? You know, it's it's changed everything. It's changed the fact that we're doing this over Zoom and you're in Belize and I'm in Minnesota and right. <laughs> in Maryland. I mean, it's uh, it's one of the beauties of, of this world that we live in. I think, first of all, it's just changed the opportunities that people have to access talent, right? Especially now you can access talent from across the country, across the world, and really leverage human capital in an entirely different way. That's super exciting, especially in a time of the labor shortage. It just gives you that new opportunity set as you think about developing your business or, or, or your growth. I think it provides opportunities for economic developers, obviously, to, to see and feel sites and locations they couldn't have otherwise been at. I know your COO, Ron Kresh, has done some really interesting work with VR on that front to give people that kind of sense of a, of a site or a location without having to travel there. I think we all know that that in-person experience is so valuable. So you've got to balance some of those things, but I think technology gives us opportunity there. I also just think that every business at this point is a technology business. So you've got to, as you're thinking about, you know, building your local economy and the kind of businesses that you want to drive, keeping that in mind and, and keeping that in mind when you think about the talent pool that you're trying to access for these companies too. Um, you know, we need more technology education in our high schools. We need guidance counselors with that kind of aptitude. I think, Computer science should be a graduation requirement in Minnesota, not just an option. Um, it's something that we feel like to build that pipeline for talent, you got to start early. And so I think it's, just, it's changing all aspects. Those are a couple of things. But, you know, there's fierce competition out there for talent in this space. And it's one of the hardest things to hire for. It's in demand and it's a competitive you know, landscape and the ecosystems that can, where you can get government and business and startups and accelerators all working together to create some energy around, you know, a, a location, they tend to start to draw talent just because of what they've heard and the opportunities spin out from there. So that's the kind of brew you're trying to mix when, when you're thinking about tech ecosystems these days. And hopefully Minnesota's getting that right. We're, we're on our way, I think. Well, and I think it's interesting when you talk about tech ecosystems, because your background, you were obviously with Google and with YouTube. So you have experience in exactly that and, and obviously working with two major companies that exponential growth and did recruit top talent. Minnesota is not California. Can Minnesota create that type of ecosystem and energy? Um, and if so, what, what makes Minnesota different than California? Yeah, I mean, I think we definitely can create and are creating a great technology ecosystem here. I don't think any ecosystem's goal should be to completely replicate Silicon Valley. Um, first of all, you need to stand in your own truth and be who you are, but also there's downsides what Silicon Valley has created too, notwithstanding the fact that it's an extraordinary ecosystem. To be clear, I've spent more than a decade of my career there. Look, I think Minnesota's advantages are unique. We, on the one hand, have probably the, the most advanced medical technology sector of any state in the country. Uh, and that feeds off of Mayo, it feeds off of the historical trends in computing that really started here with supercomputers really taking a big boom here in the 
late seventies, early eighties. So we, we have happened to spawn a great med tech environment. That's fantastic. We also have a very diversified economy. So you've got ag tech, you got retail tech, you got FinTech, you got um, a bunch of these technology ecosystems kind of adjacent to other major industries where you've seen a ton of innovation in our market, a ton of exits uh, as of late in those fields. But maybe the biggest advantage is just that this is a state that has a really dense concentration of Fortune 500 companies, 18 Fortune 500s in Minnesota. So if you're a business that is doing anything in software or B2B or where an instant client would help, you have not only access to a customer right away that can do things at scale, we have access to talent in a way that is really unique. One of the things that startups can do here is if you're at that stage of starting to expand and you need to hire your first HR person, your first lawyer, your first uh, business development person, you've got a really great professional class here to help build that startup ecosystem. So that's a really big advantage. Um, we've got a good education system, a university. We certainly want to see that grow, but the U of M has a world-class computer science program. We've got an extraordinary collection of, uh, of liberal arts colleges that teach those things as well. So we do have some advantages. Um, I think that when the pandemic struck and those in California were thinking about where they would move, Miami probably sounded more attractive than Minnesota because it's warmer there. You've got beaches. And I, I don't say it to be too glib, but it's just true. We understand that uh, Minnesota is viewed as a very cold state, and it is. Um, and I, I only bring it up to say that while it detracts folks from thinking about moving here on the front end, there's research that shows that once you've landed here, it's very hard to leave. Uh, we have great public schools great infrastructure, great amenities, great outdoors. You kind of get used to the fact that there's four seasons. Most people end up kind of liking that. And so it's got this kind of livability quotient that I think is overlooked sometimes when you think about the big flat Midwest. Minnesota is not that. And I think we need to talk more about that when we're recruiting folks because it has a really unique differentiator in terms of how it uh, is positioned against maybe some of our, I don't know, friendly competitors to the north, south, east, and west. Awesome. Well, so we're going to switch gears uh, here and and get to know you a little bit better. So yeah. you have a technology background. We covered that. You were an executive at Google, um, YouTube. What drew you to economic development? Well, at Google, the teams that I led were focused on trying to use Google technology for good in some way or another. Uh, YouTube, I built the team that was focused on news and politics, and we were really concentrating on the, the advent of citizen journalism, you know, 10 or 15 years ago and, uh, and the use of, of YouTube political speech and sharing access to information. And, and my job was to build a team focused on that and building partnerships and opportunities there. At, at Google, I was focused on uh, most recently building a team called the News Lab, focused on using Google's technology and data for newsrooms and for journalism around the world to, to empower the growth of a, a stronger media ecosystem, which we all know is desperately needed these days. So I guess I always had a sense that I wanted to do work that I felt a sense of purpose about and that there are, are tools and opportunities out there that not a lot of people have access to. And if you can find ways to expand that access, you're doing something good for the world. So I kind of look at this job in a similar light. More directly, what led me to this really is the fact that I had a relationship with our governor and was just a, a fan of his over the years. I had helped very briefly on his first congressional campaign uh, back in 2006 and kind of kept in touch with him over time. And when he ran for governor, I'd always thought, man, it'd, it'd be interesting to do something in public service, but I didn't know exactly exactly what that would look like and helped him a bit on this campaign on some workforce issues. And when he won, started talking about what I might do here. And, you know, I'd been living in California before that. I had moved back to this, my home state with my wife and our four and a half year old twins. And 
had done so just to be closer to family, really. And having worked for Google remotely here for eight or nine months, thought, man, it'd be fun to do something really based in Minnesota. And so this opportunity kind of came together in that way. And, you know, a lot of the things we were doing at Google as it related to training and workforce and journalism apply somewhat similarly to economic development. But admittedly, coming into this field from the outside, you learn a lot. And I'm, I'm lucky to work for a department that has folks that have done some of this work for a long time and legislators that have done the same. And so you know, bringing some of the, the fresh eyes to that, but also learning from those in the field. It's been, a, it's been an experience, certainly. It's, but the pandemic ended up being a very different job than I probably expected, but so far, so good. I am enjoying it. That's great. And even though uh, you hadn't been in economic development per se before, this is definitely not your first foray into policy work. Uh, as a graduate of Harvard Kennedy School, you were an advisor for the State Department and the White House, uh, which is a very unique experience. Uh, can you tell us more about that? Yeah, you know, this was in the last couple of years, the Obama administration, the, the president was bringing in teams of outsiders, really in small groups, five to six people to focus on these issues where they felt like having some outside perspective would help. They called them sprints. And so they brought you in and one team tackled like digital outreach strategy for the administration. Um, another team talk, tackled like how to improve veterans benefits. And the group that I came in with was just five or six of us focused on countering violence extremism and trying to stop the trend of particularly ISIS using online tools to recruit Americans and others to come over and join uh, their terrorist militia. And so we spent three weeks in a concentrated way and then beyond that additional time consulting, figuring out how government should organize itself to tackle that challenge. And it was a really vexing challenge because you had this group that was using a lot of spots on the internet to convey uh, an image of a band of warriors, you know, in the Middle East who are building, you know, Nirvana and who had this kind of strength and this courage to fight for what was right and also would make you a part of their own, uh, you know, of their own team. And it had actually a lot to do with the economy at the time, too. I mean, the, the top recruits they got were folks who were kind of down and out on their luck in the economy were looking for something to belong to. So we spent a lot of time on the social psychology of that. We spent a lot of time on the the kind of online strategies to combat uh, that work and looking for ways in which uh, not only the message, which is always hard when it comes from the government because it feels less real, but moreover, the overall strategy and the partnership work could be you know, built to, to counter this. We ended up creating an office called the, um, the Global Engagement Center, which still exists today, which is kind of the State Department's new arm for how to tackle online extremism using some of these tools. It was a really profound experience and, you know, I felt very lucky to get to do it and uh, learned a lot as much as I hope I was able to contribute. And, you know, of course, now that effort has been shifted mainly to focusing on uh, other parts of the globe. Uh, Russia in particular is the main office of the focus right now. And these are problems that are not going away and how we police the Internet, how we navigate it, how we track bad actors using some of those tools is going to stay with us for a long time. And I, I hope that the work we did contributed to that, that journey for our government because it's something where government really does need to play a role and it needs to be really partnered with tech companies, needs to be partnered with, with media companies, needs to be partnered with influencers who have much more of, a, uh, uh, of an effect on potential recruits than Uncle Sam might. And so it was a really, a really unique experience. Well, it's interesting because it ties back into the partnership you were talking about earlier, how government can't do it alone you have to really pull everyone together in order to make that impact. Yeah, no, there's no question. 
So your, uh, your wife is involved in a business incubator. Can you share any news about uh, what you're seeing come out of local incubators? Oh, sure. Yeah. So Mary is the founding partner of a venture firm called um, Bread and Butter. And she and her partner, Brett Bowl, uh, started this fund, um, about a $25 million fund focused on investing in early stage startups. And uh, they're based in Minnesota. They focus on companies around the, the country, around the world, really. Uh, but use kind of the Minnesota home field advantage is this value add to their company, the access to all the major corporates here I talked about earlier and some of the talent there uh, and insights you get from those, those uh, relationships are a big part of their value added ecosystem. And I think being based in Minnesota just gives them a different lens. You think about most VC firms are on the coasts. I think not enough folks are looking at states like Minnesota for some of these opportunities. So she's really excited about it. You know, there are a lot of opportunities for really early stage companies in our state. One of the things we've launched at our department is called Launch Minnesota. And it's a new program focused on super early stage companies and incentivizing them to, to start. And, you know, Minnesota, while it has that great business survivability rate I talked about earlier, we have kind of lower rates of people that actually take the leap and start something. There's a little bit too much risk aversion in the market here. So Launch Minnesota provides these incentive grants for people to leave their existing job, or whatever they're doing, and try to start something by giving them a little extra money to get going. And we're seeing great companies come out of this. We're early, but we're seeing companies reinvent how kids access information through, uh, through lifelike devices. We're seeing companies rebuild the ways that people save money and donate money. We're seeing on the more advanced stages of things, companies that are reinventing um, you know, organ transplants. And you can have some companies that have exited recently in our state, Bright Health being one of them, uh, who are reinventing the health insurance market. So you've got a good cross-section of startups that are beginning here. And I think one of the things that the Mary's firm is doing, and certainly that Launch Minnesota is trying to do, is really foster that early stage environment so that um, you get more, more risk appetite in the state and that you get more swings at the pitch and, and hopefully invest in those that are going to make you know, the next big Fortune 500 that will live and thrive in, in our state. Well, you already answered our next question. We wanted to know what the state should do to support entrepreneurs. Oh. <laughs> Is there anything you want to add, though, to what you already said? Well, more of it. Yeah. I mean, I think that the states that are investing heavily here are, are seeing returns. We have an angel tax credit in the state, for example, which is great. We're proud of it. Could be three times the size and still exhaust its funds every year. Uh, we want to attract more venture dollars to the state. And sometimes the tax incentive is a little bit helpful there. We're very excited about the SSBCI program launching again through, through those ARP dollars. This is a state small business credit initiative. It provides funding for early stage small businesses, but also an opportunity to create kind of a matching venture fund. That'll come later this year, but we're really eager to land that one right um, at a really unique time in our, our, our ecosystem. Um, I mean, the state just has to play a role. Obviously, we can't, we're not going to be the ones creating the ideas in government. We're, we're just trying to foster an ecosystem that gets there. But when you see Silicon Valley didn't happen by accident, right? There was a ton of, of federal contracting there happened that happened with the Defense Department. Massachusetts didn't happen by accident. They had a quasi state venture fund way back in late 1970s. Um, Austin didn't just pop up out of nowhere. There was a great collaboration between the university and the Austin city government and trying to become that kind of second location for Silicon Valley companies for talent. Um, Minnesota is going to be no different. We have to have state government playing a forward-leaning role there, you know, with others. And the U is a big part of that too. We're, we're grateful to have a great university here that, that cares about these things, but we're, uh, we're excited. We think it's an ecosystem on the move. We think it's a, it's a big area of growth for us and, and government has to just keep doing more. 
And speaking of Silicon Valley, and uh, you you mentioned earlier the importance of technology education in our schools. You and your wife also started a nonprofit, Silicon North Stars. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, we're excited. We're just in the next week and a half here, launching our I think eighth class of students. And this started way back when we were living in California. We wanted to find a way to connect to the community here in Minnesota and share a little bit of what we were able to benefit from out in that ecosystem with kids here. So we bring in rising ninth graders every year, about 16 or 20, depending on the year, into this organization where the original thesis was bring them out to Silicon Valley, give them a week-long kind of tour of you know, Google, YouTube, Facebook, Lyft, Uber, whatever the company might be, put them through a startup boot camp. They create a, a, their own startup company based on a, a challenge or a prompt that we give them. And we have kind of a demo day at the end of the week. We were doing that for six or seven years before we moved back here. And then we did kind of one more in the Valley when we were here and flew out. And then we thought, well, let's, let's try doing one in Minnesota. The ecosystem here is maturing. There's a lot here. So we now inflected to doing these camps here uh, in Minnesota and have just had a great reception. The ecosystem here has really grown and there's tons of great companies to visit. Throughout the year after that initial camp experience, we then bring students to different tech companies around the around the cities. And these are primarily kids in, in St. Paul, Minneapolis. They're all, by the way, from underserved backgrounds, most of them black and brown. And we just give them exposure to these companies. We get them mentorship with engineers and product managers and marketing managers and whoever it might be, just about what it means to work in these businesses. If you haven't seen it, it's hard to believe you could be it. And so we're just trying to give that little bit of exposure to some of the folks in these fields that will get them excited. And, and, you know, we're not teaching coding. We're not, that's not, that's not our specialty is, isn't the actual education. It's the exposure and the kind of mentorship that we think is a gap. And, you know, these kids have gone on to do really great things. And in fact, one of Mary's interns at her venture fund right now is one of our first Silicon North Stars students. Uh, he's on oh. a full ride to, to Pomona right now in California. So it's, it's a good crew of students. And it just, it's really inspiring to us to see these kids and their ideas. And it gives us kind of hope for the future. Yeah, that's amazing. So I saw this on your your LinkedIn profile, and I have I had to ask about it because I'm actually going to be um, living here for about three months at the end of the year. But I saw, um, and to add to your unique life experiences, I saw that you spent some time living with and studying tribes in Africa. Yeah. Uh, what was that like? <laughs> I did. Yeah. Well, it was, it was in college. I it was a it was a great study abroad program put on by the School for International Training called Wildlife Ecology and Conservation. And we went out and essentially studied how native tribes interacted with land and what sort of their natural conservation, you know, practices became based on the needs that they faced. And you know, we were with the Maasai for a while. We spent a lot of time with a tribe called the Hadza Bay, which were a hunter-gatherer tribe. And then at the end of the time that you're there, you do an independent study project. And so I focused on the Hadza Bay and went and lived with one of their tribes for uh, about a week and a half. And my original idea was, well, I'll go and live with the tribe for a week and a half and learn how they live off the land. Then I'll go try to do it myself for three or four days or something. And I Learned pretty quickly that was a pretty dumb idea when on the first day I was picking berries with some of the women and they pointed to, to this berry. So this berry is very nutritious. This is what we eat every day. And then they pointed to another berry and said, this one is poisonous and it will kill you. And I was like, that's the same berry from my perspective. <laughs> so it was a good reminder that, you know, thousands of years of tribal knowledge aren't, aren't downloaded in a second. It was a humbling experience, but yeah. you know, it was really an opportunity to see a part of the world that never otherwise would have. And to see, you know, a group of people live 
in concert with nature in a way that I don't think I've ever seen before. And also in a time that, you know, their lifestyle is very threatened. It was a, it was a really unique experience. One of those life-changing, you know, inflection points for you and a lucky, a lucky experience back in those days. And something I think about often actually. So Commissioner Grove, we are uh, at the end of the interview now, but what we would love to do if you're okay with it is play shovel toss. So I have 10 questions for you. I will toss them your way and you answer as fast as you can. Are you up for that? Let's do it. All right. Okay, here we go. Last book you read. Underground Railroad. Favorite podcast. Well, shovel talk, I'd say number (laughs) two would be probably This American Life. It's an oldie, but a goodie. I just always go back to it. Great answer. (laughs) First thing you do in the morning. Uh, I open my computer and read the news. Yeah. Get, get started in the day and what's happening around the world. And when you were younger, what did you want to be when you grew up? An archeologist was the first thing I can remember wanting to be. Uh, I thought that would be awesome. And then I went on an archeological dig and found it colossally boring. I was only six, <laughs> but you just basically dig in holes and you never found anything. And then I kind of, from there, a thousand <laughs> other things, but archeologist was the first one. <laughs> uh, favorite superhero and why? Oh, my kids are really into superheroes right now. I have to say Batman just because he has literally no actual superpower. He just made himself into this like extraordinary Kung Fu artist and detective and, you know, Dark Knight through power of pure will. So I have to say Batman. All right. Uh, What superpower would you want and why? Oh, well, to fly, of course. I mean, (laughs) it's either to fly or to be invisible. Isn't that kind of the two you always have to choose from? I'd say, but probably to fly. I think that'd be incredible. If you could live anywhere in the world for a year, where would you live? You know, I, I really think it'd be fascinating to live in Antarctica for a year. Like, I don't know if it would be the most enjoyable year, but you watch those documentaries of the scientists that live down there and, and what they go through and like the extreme temperatures and just the utterly unique nature of that. I don't know if I could do a year, but like if I had to do something really unique for, let's say six months, yeah. I'd say that. All right. Yeah. <laughs> If you could have a meal with anyone in history, who would it be with and why? Hmm, that's a great question. It'd be George Washington. I mean, just such an interesting figure at an inflection point in our country and how he thought about not only our relationship with the British and the war, but also the founding moments. I mean, so many decisions that he made just set the tone for so long. I mean, there's a long list, but I might, I might say George Washington is, is high on it. Your favorite band or singer when you were a teenager? Oh, interesting. Probably Bruce Springsteen. And that might even still be true. Um, you know how those things kind of stick with you. Okay. I, I think I have a pretty wide taste, but hard to, hard to quibble with Bruce. And what was the most embarrassing hairstyle or article of clothing from your childhood? Oh, gosh. <laughs> well, when I was in eighth grade, my mom thought it'd be a phenomenal idea to give me a perm because she thought <laughs> curly hair on on boys would be great but she left the curlers in too long so I had like this tight jerry curl perm for my eighth grade school picture that I'd rather not have be seen in public uh (laughs) that's probably the worst one (laughs) that's That's good well thank you so much for being a good sport amazing answers that was hilarious (laughs) (laughs) thanks Uh, shovel toss I like it I'll have to try that Jen we'll try that with our team back at Deed and hopefully yeah, no fun. one will find your perm when they Google you. Yeah. <laughs> well, thanks for having me. This is great. It's great what you're doing. So thanks for reaching out. Absolutely. Thanks for being here. We appreciate it. 
Well, that was a very fun conversation. A very big thank you to Commissioner Steve Grove of the Minnesota Department of Employment and Economic Development. You can like the Minnesota Department of Employment and Economic Development on Facebook at MNDeed. On Twitter, follow them at MNDeed. On LinkedIn, follow them at the Minnesota Department of Employment and Economic Development. And on YouTube, subscribe at Deed Minnesota. And last but not least, Instagram, follow them at Minnesota underscore Deed. As far as Golden Shovel News goes, uh, we've got some uh, great podcasts lined up to wrap up the summer. Um, upcoming webinars, we've got the do's and don'ts of economic development websites, which may or not have happened by the time you listen to this. We have a new Planning Your Website um, ebook that should be showing up in your inbox very, very soon. We also have a couple great new hires we're very excited to announce. Golden Shovel Social Media, please like us at Shovel Toss. Twitter follows at Gold Shovel. LinkedIn follows at Golden Shovel Agency. And on YouTube, please subscribe at Golden Shovel Agency. Thanks again to Commissioner Steve Grove for joining us on this edition of Shovel Talk. And we'll talk to you very, very soon. Mm-hmm.